Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our new series with the birth narratives of the Old Testament. This series is going to take us through Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. And in this episode, the guys will be talking about Genesis chapter 21 and the birth of Isaac. As you probably know, if you've been following our work, we are big on chanting the Psalms at Theopolis. And we wanted to let you know that we just put out a quick video, about nine or 10 minutes in length, on how to chant the Psalms. There's a link to that video in the show notes, and it's also on our YouTube channel. And we hope that you find it really useful. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers discussing Genesis chapter 21 and the birth of Isaac. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background making sure that everything is edited and smoothed out for you, our listening audience. Thank you for joining us for the podcast. Uh, We're at the beginning of a a short series of podcasts on types of the nativity for the Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany season. We're going to be looking at birth stories in the Bible. And specifically, we're going to be looking at the birth stories in the book of Genesis, or at least a number of the major ones. And then we'll be jumping ahead midway through the series Uh, to the New Testament and looking at the birth accounts of Jesus in the Gospels. Part of the rationale for doing this is that to understand fully what's happening in the birth stories of Jesus, we need to have this background, this typological background. And we already saw that in our first episode when we looked at uh, Genesis 3, particularly Genesis 3.15 and the promise of the seed. Uh, And we noticed a a number of things that are important, uh, but sometimes somewhat perhaps neglected features of our understanding of the birth of Jesus. Uh, One of the things we talked about was the corporate character of the seed in Genesis 3. The promise is not just of an individual who's going to crush the serpent's head, but of an individual savior who's going to gather a head-crushing people around him that will trample Satan under their feet. Uh, And that's that's a theme that becomes more explicit later on in the Bible, but it's already anticipated there, I think, in the way that uh, Genesis 3.15 uh, promises a victory over Satan. We're going to be doing the same with another birth story, or the actual birth story in the book of Genesis. We'll be looking at Genesis 21, the first seven verses of that chapter in particular. We'll be looking at the surrounding sections of the uh, Abraham narrative, but that's the story of the birth of Isaac. And uh, we'll be looking again at what's happening in that passage and how it fits into the rest of the Abraham story. Uh, but we also want to think about how it points ahead and uh, gives us uh, particular angles to look at the birth of Jesus. Uh, a couple of things to set us up. Uh, one is, I made the point at the beginning of the last episode when we looked at the, uh, the seed of the woman, uh, that you have a numerological reference to the 12 tribes of Israel, the word seed uh, as noun and as verb is used 10 times in Genesis 1, always retur- referring to plants. And then it's used twice in Genesis 3.15. The first, the 11th use of the word in the, in the Bible used to refer to the uh, seed of the serpent. And then this, the 12th use to the seed of the woman. So you have this numerological connection between the seed of the woman and the coming 12 tribes of Israel. And I think you, all, you have uh, something like that going on also in the birth of Isaac that we have in Genesis 21, 
uh, not a not a, a repeated word that gives us a twelve number connection, but rather uh, the generations. Uh, the Genesis has a series of ten generation increments. There are ten generations between Adam and Noah, between the first Adam and the next Adam, who is Noah. Then from Noah to Abraham, there are ten generations. Uh, and if you count inclu- inclusively and count Noah in that, uh, then you're getting to an Israelite generation with uh, with uh, with Isaac, twelfth generation after Noah. So you have that that twelve tribes reference numerologically again. The other thing I wanted to point, suggest was a kind of overview of the Abraham narrative, which is roughly following the history of Israel. There's several points where that's obvious, but I think that it will help us to see that there's a there's a typological uh, organization of the of the Abraham narrative that links the birth of Isaac up with the birth of with the birth of Jesus. Uh, after the call of Abraham, we have this Exodus story that's right at the be- beginning of the Abraham narrative, very closely uh, linked up with the book with the uh, story of the great Exodus and the book of Exodus, as Alistair has pointed out in his book on Exodus. Abraham comes up out of the land and he conquers the land and rescues Lot. So there's a conquest of the land that immediately follows that Exodus story. Uh, Then we move into a period of a a kind of king period where Abraham is promised a son. The first explicit promise of a son occurs in Genesis 17. We've had promises of the seed, which are a promise of descendants and a promise of posterity, but specifically that Abraham is going to have a son through Sarah is something that he's promised in, in uh, Genesis 17. And in that same context, he's promised that uh, kings will come from him. So there's a, a reference to the coming of a, of a kingdom. That's followed in Genesis 18 and 19 by the destruction of Sodom, the great city, which uh, has a linkage with the destruction of other unfaithful cities throughout, uh, the, throughout the Bible, but particularly the destruction of Jerusalem, the unfaithful city. Then Abraham, after the destruction of Sodom, Abraham goes into exile again. He goes out of the land again, this time in sojourning in the land of Gerar, uh, where he has goes through the similar kind of experience that he had in Egypt. Uh, and uh, this, in the in the typological flow of Abraham's story, this this is uh, the ex- this is the exile that follows the destruction of the city, uh, which is uh, pointing ahead to the exile of Israel in Babylon. Uh, Abraham functions as a prophet here, praying for Abimelech. Uh, and then uh, Abimelech is delivered from the curse that he's under. And then after that preview of uh, Israel in a kind of prophetic situation out in out among the nations, Isaac is born. So it seems like you're moving from exodus to conquest to promise of a son and a kingdom to a destruction of a city to an exile, another exile. The birth of Isaac is in the slot of the Abraham story where you'd expect the birth of the Messiah. So it does seem like you're leading up that the birth of Isaac is, generally speaking, it's a it's a type of the coming Messiah. It's a miracle birth. It's a birth out of a dead womb. It's a birth from the dead body of Abraham, and so it's foreshadowing the miracle birth of Jesus. But um, it, you also seem to have this uh, this kind of larger narrative connection that uh, links the birth of Isaac with the uh, the birth of a Messiah of a son that comes after Israel has gone into exile. Yeah, and remember, years before this birth of Isaac, you had Abraham in Genesis 16, uh, basically recapitulating uh, Adam's fall by uh, thinking that he could, in his own flesh, bring forth 
the promised seed uh, through Hagar. And uh, it, all the language of Genesis 3 is found here with uh, Abraham listening to the voice of his wife and Abraham taking or seizing Hagar, the Egyptian. Um, and then uh, there's even more connections here with, uh, with Genesis 3. But that attempt by Abraham to give birth to the seed in his flesh um, 10 years or so after he comes into the land in Genesis 12 is then immediately followed by Abraham having to cut off his flesh in Genesis 16. So that the flesh, the flesh of his foreskin is rolled back and there's a new flesh, a new um, uh, a resurrection, if you will, on the eighth day. Uh, and then that's when Abraham is given this promise that um, he will have a son and he will be, um, he will be fruitful. Uh, so, um, so this, this is a miracle birth in Genesis 21. And it is, it is clearly, uh, it is clearly God who uh, El Shaddai, the one who has power over all nature and can use nature can use creation to bring bring about his promises that does this for Isaac and brings about uh, this this uh, child laughter as Sarah names him because it is uh, it's funny uh, she can't believe it and and it is it is miraculous yeah that connection of uh, Ishmael Isaac or that sequence of Ishmael Isaac of course Paul speaks about that as an allegory about the fleshly seed and the seed of the spirit. But yeah, that, that's already there in, in Genesis. And uh, you could link that up with the broader theme of first and last Adam, the first son and the last son. Um, the first son is, uh, is blessed. Uh, Ishmael is going to be blessed, but he's not the one who's going to carry the promise or the one that's going to carry the covenant. He's not the one that's going to crush the serpent's head. And between the time that, um, God appears to Abraham in Genesis 18 and promises him the son and the birth of the son in that nine months between there, um, we have the, a satanic attack from Abimelech in chapter 20, um, which it is clear from the way the narrative is, is, uh, is put here that Abimelech is trying to impregnate Sarah. Remember God, uh, has to heal Abimelech and his wife and all the female slaves that they, so they could bear children because Yahweh had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech. So you have this, again, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, enmity, this attempt by a satanic-inspired figure to bring about or to, to actually uh, stop the promised birth of the seed. Uh, that And that... That's it's it's fascinating that all through Genesis and all the way up to the birth of Jesus, including the birth of Jesus, you have the seed of Satan always attempting to put an end to the promise by means of stopping the birth. Uh, if he can stop the birth, then he can cut off God's promise, and it seems that that is happening all the time. And in, in fact, it, it continues to happen, of course, if we have a corporate understanding of the seed, once Jesus is resurrected and ascended, and we are 
the corporate seed, the satanic attack comes against us as well. Uh, that's Revelation 12 and so many places in the book of Revelation. The story of the seed has been an important theme within the story of Abraham all the way through. Um, so at the very outset, there is the story of Abraham. There's a death in the family. Haran dies and they, um, at that point, we're told that Abraham and Nahor take wives. Nahor taking Milcah, the daughter of Haran, um, his niece. And Iska is also the daughter of Haran. And some have speculated that Iska is the same as Sarai, that um, Abraham might be trying to raise up seed through Leverett marriage for his um, brother who has died. But whether or not that's the case, he takes um, his nephew, Lot, with him. And presumably he expects that Lot's going to be the one who is the means by which he's going to be made great and his name is going to be made great. There's no mention earlier on that it will be through Sarah. And then when, after the first few chapters in chapter 14, Lot does not return to him after his deliverance, after the defeat of the kings. You can imagine Abraham's crisis at that point. And in chapter 15, the concern that Eliezer of Damascus in his house is going to be the one that inherits everything. And the response to that being his desire, as the Lord declares, that it will be some from his own flesh to raise up a seed through Hagar. And then that again is proved to be wrong and so in chapter 17 the promise that it will be through Sarai that or through Sarah that his seed will be called this is all against the backdrop of death a failure to bring forth the seed and an attempt to um, recover after the failure first of all the death of the brother the um, departure of the nephew the um the house-born servant that he does not want ultimately to leave everything to, and then to the departure of um, Hagar and Ishmael. Now, that background of death is something that uh, James noticed when we were looking at uh, Genesis 3, that in the world under curse and death, um, still the Lord is going to bring a seed that's going to crush the serpent's head and going to deliver. And of course, uh, as uh, Alistair is saying, that uh, that's the that's a, a great theme of the Abraham narrative is uh, this is the way Paul reads the Abraham narrative. This is Abraham as good as dead, his wife's womb as good as dead. And yet Abraham hoping against hope for life. He hopes in the God who raises the dead. He hopes in the God who calls uh, things that are not as, the, as, as, as though they were. And so his, his faith is in resurrection life. That's going to be embodied in his son. Hmm. Right. It's odd, isn't it? It's almost as if rather than like picking verses at random, Paul has like a really good understanding of the Old Testament. <laughs> no, it's primitive and pre-modern. He, he doesn't have a scientific understanding of, uh, of the Bible. <laughs> but I, I guess something, it's not exactly death, but certainly the backdrop of like infertility, I guess, that Jeff alluded to um, in the last two chapters um, brings out the whole fruitfulness of this promise, doesn't it? You have in um, chapter 19, um, the Sodom incident where there are, you know, a, a whole society uh, wanting to engage in 
unfruitful relations, relationships which can't result in the bringing forth of seed, and then the closing of the wombs in um, uh, in Genesis twenty, and presumably there the idea is that this is a um, a, a king who is involved with um, Sarah or is seeking to be involved with Sarah, and so this will be a, a symbol of of great virility. You know, kings even in Israel's history had tons of, of sons, you know, to perpetuate their seed. And, and so there's this kind of very pronounced um, backdrop of infertility um, against which um, God's promises uh, comes to fruition. Yeah, I want to go back to a comment that Jeff made about uh, cutting off the flesh. He was talking about circumcision. I think it's related to what you were just saying, James, that uh, flesh is impotent, flesh can't bring new life. But there's a, a, another aspect of that. Um, uh, Jonathan Grossman, in a book from, uh, called From Abram to Abraham, points out that uh, Abraham is told to leave his father's house. Um, and we think that as soon as he, he leaves Ur or when he leaves Haran, that he's leaving his father's house behind. But he still has a lot with him, and he still has this connection with his father's house. And it's really not until uh, after Sodom falls that Lot is out of the picture and so there's a there's a cutting off of flesh that's ritualized in the fact of circumcision. There's also kind of cutting off of flesh and the fleshly past that happens with the severance from uh, from Lot that, uh, that that you know that finally occurs with the destruction of Sodom. So that it's that old world that's that's falling away, and when that old world falls away, then uh, then uh, Sarah's the Lord visits Sarah and makes her and opens her womb and she becomes fruitful. And there's a lot going on in the text that is very subtle, but indicating some of the um, deeper themes that are at play. So, for instance, the, there is an enunciation of the birth of Isaac before he's uh, born. And there's a slowing down also of the narrative. We've been going through the narrative at a rate of knots at this uh, the earlier parts of the Abraham narrative. And then suddenly around chapter 17, it really slows down. And the next few chapters take place over the course of a year or two, whereas previously um, that passage covered um, decades. And so there's a focus upon this particular period of time. And within that, there are ways in which the text wants to draw our attention to particular features. For instance, in chapters 18 and 19, there is a juxtaposition of two situations, one of great hospitality and the other of extreme inhospitality. There's the visit of the three angels to Abraham. He's sitting in the tent door at the heat of the day. He bows down, runs out, greets them and invites them for a meal. And then there's the declaration of life as the woman is standing in the door of the house and then the barren made fruitful. And then in the next chapter, we have the two angels coming to Lot. He's sitting in the door of Sodom, and he again greets them in a similar manner to Abraham, invites them in for a meal. But now it's midnight rather than the middle of the day. There's now a threat of death in the doorway rather than the promise of life. And the wife is made barren as a pillar of salt rather than made fruitful. And at the end, there's the tragic story of the birth of Moab and Ammon, um, through the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And so there's this juxtaposition of these characters. Then there's also key terms, like the terms to do with laughter, the laughter that um, Abraham has when he first hears 
in chapter 17. And then when Sarai or Sarah first hears in chapter 18, and then it's repeated at various other points. It's um, the tip off to Abimelech that there is a relationship between um, Isaac and Rebecca in chapter um, 26, I think it is. But it's also the reason why Ishmael is cast out. And then later on, it occurs again in the context of the story of um, of Joseph, that he brought in this Hebrew servant to market us, is declared twice, and he finds himself in the position of, of Hagar and Ishmael within that story. But now he's the Hebrew and the, the servant who's oppressed within the household of the Egyptian. But all of these details, I think, show that there are deeper theological themes that the text is alerting us to that help us to interpret the importance of what's taking place here. Yeah, that's really helpful, Alistair. And I think that one of the things that uh, I think it highlights, you have this, you have this um, tremendous catastrophe of the fall of Sodom. You have the, the evil of Sodom that's rising all the way up to heaven and uh, offending God. Uh, you have, uh, so you have these uh, large political circumstances surrounding it and then you know the the world of death that we've been describing uh, and then you have Abraham and Sarah not rulers of the land and the the key thing that's going to be the the point of redemption that's leading to the redemption of that world of death is the birth of a child that's a recurring from from Genesis 3:15 that we started look started this series with uh, that's a recurring thing in scripture that the the hopes of the world turn on the birth of a child uh, you have you have that in at points during the 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 monarchy in 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 Judah, when all of the royal seed is dead and everything turns on the survival of Joash, the house of David is going to be destroyed and all the promises that were given to David are threatened, and the 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 carrier of that promise is a helpless child. Isaiah picks up on that obviously with the promise of a child who will bear the the government on his shoulders and. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and peace will increase without end. It's a child. It's the, it's the child in, our, in, in another vision of Isaiah that uh, plays on the viper's den. Um, it's the child Jesus that's the hope of the world. So it's this new birth, this, this uh, apparently weak and uh, irrelevant kind of event that's the key to the turning uh, turning the situation, bringing life from the dead, bringing the world to new life. It's an almost forgotten, invisible event of uh, a miracle birth to an old woman. That's that's the key event that's going to turn turn things around. Yeah, it's really remarkable how much emphasis there is in the old world, in the Hebrew scriptures on, on births, on genealogies, on... Um, uh, on, as you say, Peter, that the hope of Israel and the world turns on um, some birth. You see this with Hannah in uh, 1 Samuel. Her child is going to be the salvation, the deliverance of, of Israel. But it's all through. I mean, it's just like it's this kind of future orientation. A child is going to be born, um, and it definitely connects back up with Genesis 3, that's the hope. And then when you get to the New Testament, there's nothing like that anymore. After the birth of Jesus, there's no emphasis on 
childbirth. I, I, I can't think of a single reference in the New Testament uh, that in, in the epistles or anything that is emphasizing or calling attention to childbearing, except for maybe the, um, uh, the second Timothy passage. But then that passage is in dispute of whether he's talking about the salvation of all women through the birth of the seed, um, or if he's talking about the health and deliverance of women generally as they fulfill their created purpose in giving, giving birth to children. Um, but beyond that, once Jesus is born, uh, the promises, the prophecies, the purpose of Israel is fulfilled. And now the seed, okay, now you, you guys might help me on this, but it seems like um, it's not so much the physical seed as much as it is the spiritual seed, the spirit bringing new birth to people, uh, which is the hope of the world, which is not to say that the natural function of women and the importance of, of birth is uh, set aside completely. That would be foolish. We wouldn't have a human race if that were the case. But there certainly isn't the emphasis as there was in the old world on this, this necessity of, of, of birth and the future of the world depending on the birth of a son. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. You you certainly have a striking difference between the accent of the Old Testament, the accent of the New. And I reiterate your qualification that uh, one of the ways that the the people of God continue to expand, and one of the main ways is through reproduction. But uh, the accent of the New Testament is elsewhere. And I think uh, uh, one other note to add to that: um, I'm, I've been struck for a long time with Paul's description of his own ministry among the Galatians when he talks about being like a laboring mother who's going to labor over them until Christ is formed in them. Um, so uh, Paul is the Paul's the, the miracle mother who's giving birth to a miracle seed, the the corporate seed of the Galatian church, but he's the one who's in labor over them until they're produced. And, and it's by the spirit that he's able to become a kind of maternal figure in the church. So yeah, I think that's uh, that. I think that that shift is there. I, I think we maybe want to uh, figure out good ways to say it so that we don't minimize or exclude the importance of uh, actual reproduction for Christians. But uh, I think that the shift of accent is definitely going on there. I think one thing might be worth looking at on that front is the way that circumcision seems to be associated with the opening of. Sarah's womb, um, in that it, it is circumcision that really makes Abraham fruitful. He's already had children, a child through um, Hagar, he'll later have children through Keturah, but there's something about circumcision that makes him fitting to bear children um, in a way that he wasn't before. Something changes, and I've found um, Howard Eilberg's Schwartz's discussion of circumcision as a fruitful cut, helpful here. You mentioned earlier, Peter, about the way that um, Abraham is cut off from his past in the calling to leave his um, father's house, etc. And we have a very similar expression to that at the beginning of the next chapter in chapter 22, where he's told to leave and to take his son and to go to a mountain that the Lord will show him. 
and it's calling back to the original event, but now he's not leaving his past behind. He's being willing to give up his and abandon his future, everything that his son stands for. And circumcision, I think, is in a similar way, a cutting off. It's the cutting off of the flesh, um, the flesh's sense of a sort of phallic self-assertion, the connection with, we mentioned earlier, the, the kings who would have large sire great numbers of sons through a large harem. That's not what Abraham is called to do. Everything depends upon this one woman whose um, womb is going to be opened. And then there are other ways in which he has to surrender his strength and his sense of ownership. Of He has to give up um, Ishmael in this chapter as well. There's a almost a twofold sending away that might recall the um, sacrifice associated with the Day of Atonement. But it seems to me that what we're dealing with here is his, um, his ability to bear sons has to be, as it were, pruned to be fruitful for the Lord. It has to be tamed. It has to be domesticated. It's not just this natural virility that's going to um, achieve the promise, but rather he has to receive the sign of the righteousness of faith. And so the children of the Haborn are not just born through natural um, powers of procreation, but they're born as children of promise. Yeah, that, that reminds me of one of the points Jeff made earlier, which is that um, it seems to be that the, the enemy, you know, Satan, the serpent, seems to get involved in these incidents precisely when the child is young, you know, and I haven't quite put it together, but there's something about that that to me feels like Satan is deliberately trying to thwart the promise, you know. So while the child has just been born and the child, as it were, is is just potential, you know, and, and doesn't have a clear identity of its own it's at that stage that there is this battle over the child and so it it feels just symbolically like it very much is a battle over the future and and uh, over the potential of of uh, of the child and i i hadn't thought about that aspect of these birth narratives before but it it, it feels to me like it's there I think that's exactly right, James. And, and uh, practically speaking, I would uh, say that they're manifested in conflicts over paideia or, you know, what, what, what counts as formation of the child. That's a, that's a critical point for a conflict between uh, uh, righteousness and wickedness. Uh, who's going, who, who is going to have the, who's going to have the authority to train and form the child. So, you know, educational conflicts, you know, uh, education is kind of the, at the center of any kind of polity that lasts more than one generation. You know, if you're going to have any, you're going to have a, a heritage, a culture that's not just uh, doesn't doesn't just collapse and disappear after one generation it has to be passed on. So, a culture that exists over time depends on having a having some kind of uh, institutions and patterns of formation, and so that becomes the that becomes a conflict that becomes a conflict point because you're determining the future of the uh, society. You're determining the future of the people by how the next generation is being formed. 
And that, right. which maybe goes back to something Alistair was saying, in that circumcision obviously precedes the birth of the child. So God has almost stamped his ownership on the child initially. And Satan then is, is the usurper who comes along afterwards and, and tries to snatch it away. And on the point of training that you raised, there's also um, in chapter 18, verse 19, the statement that the Lord makes concerning Abraham. I have chosen him that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Yeah, a crucial, crucial part of the Abraham story that uh, needs to be emphasized more than it is, I think. Yeah, and um, related to that, Alistair, is the fact that Isaac doesn't turn out to be all that faithful. Um, so another, maybe, obviously, another example that all of these sons that are born, all these promised children, these uh, seeds are not the seed, not the son. Um, they all have a, uh, they all foreshadow the coming of the true seed of Abraham, but they all fail in some ways. Uh, Isaac and of course Isaac in many ways is faithful but you know he's, he's not in in the concern in the uh, story of his own sons of which son is the promised son and which son is not uh, I want to I wanted to turn to a couple other things uh, j- just to highlight again something that Jeff uh, mentioned early on in the podcast and uh, others have pointed out the the etymology of Isaac's name is laughter and the, what um, Sarah makes of that uh, in verse six of chapter twenty-one, this is a a little poetic celebration of what uh, of the birth of Isaac. Uh, God has made laughter for me. That's a pun on Isaac's name. Everyone who hears will laugh with me or for me, uh, which I think is that's an interesting way to put it because she's uh, the laughter is the laughter of uh, surprise, the laughter of uh, a surprising gift. Uh, the laughter also of the incongruity between uh, her age and Abram's age and uh, her ability to give birth to a small child. She's going to nurse a child, as she says in verse 7. Uh, but the second phrase of that little poem uh, suggests that it's not just her own joy uh, that's involved, but it's it's uh, uh, virtually a universal joy. I mean, potentially a universal joy. Everyone who hears this story, uh, this story can be shared. It has been shared since whenever this was written down, you know, and the story has been shared and it's a, uh, it's a, it's a cause for joy and laughter for everyone who hears it, because it shows that God is committed uh, even in the midst of death, even in, a, even, even when death reigns, he's committed to bringing new life. He's committed to bringing the seed of the woman who's going to overturn death. So, and I think that's obviously a part of the, that's part of the typology of this event uh, it's the birth of the son, the seed, Jesus, who's uh, br- going to bring universal joy, peace on earth, goodwill to men, uh, uh, glory to God in the highest that angels sing. There's uh, songs all the way through the early chapters of Luke, the birth stories of Luke. Everyone bursts into song because this is the great source of joy. It's the great joke, uh, the great co- source of laughter uh, in human history. And then just... A couple of verses later, after Sarah says this, we have somebody laughing, and that laughing is not accepted by her. That's um, that's the son 
of Hagar the Egyptian uh, laughing, um, Isaacing. So that's 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 a counterfeit laughter. That's a laughter that is um, not acceptable. That's that's uh, someone who's uh, pretending to be the uh, the true seed. That's certainly possible, or it's uh, possible also that uh, she just is overreacting to things because God eventually um, does indeed protect and provide for both Hagar and her son Ishmael. But it is rather striking that uh, Sarah um, wants people to laugh with her, and then in the very next verse, someone is laughing, and she doesn't like it. Um, whether she doesn't like it for the proper reasons or not um, is a, a good question. Yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a really good way to set up a, a difficulty in the text. Uh, what is actually going on with Ishmael? And I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to see that as a kind of false laughter, counterfeit laughter, but you're right that the Lord is merciful to Hagar and to Ishmael and blesses them both. So that um, uh, it's not like they're cast out uh, of God's favor, even though they're cast out of Abraham's house. But uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up with the, the story that follows, you've got the joy of Sarah that's mentioned verses six and seven. And then Abraham makes a great feast on the day that Isaac is weaned. So there's another expression of joy at the birth and the weaning of this child. But that episode leads to a departure. So uh, uh, again, I think that, uh, again, thinking in terms of Galatians uh, and Paul's use of this story, um, the, the birth of the son, the birth of the son of the spirit means the, the departure of the seed of the flesh. So that's part of, again, part of what the typology of this story is pointing to. Uh, it's the, the birth of the promised seed into the world of death who's going to bear the, bear the covenant, who's going to overcome the serpent, and so on. Uh, but at the same time, it's also a cutting off of the fleshly seed, as Paul says uh, in, in Galatians. There's, a, there's that dynamic that's uh, part of the fulfillment as well as part of this type. I wonder if I could come back to your observation, Peter, about the laughter. You said that it reflects like the incongruity of, of what's happening. And, you know, people who've kind of tried to analyse humour, which is, I guess, a bit of a strange thing to do in some ways, but they've suggested that the, the nub of humour and, and the sort of common element of, of jokes is incongruity, that there has to be that element of surprise and, and something you just don't expect coming and and that's what laughter is doing here but it just seems almost appropriate just fundamentally to all of God's means and the way in which God chooses to use the weak and the foolish and these bizarre characters in Old Testament history and, and weapons like ox goads and kind of tent pegs and, and so forth it, it just seems to be this um, aspect of incongruity um, foreshadowed here in the whole way in which God moves his redemption purposes forward. Yeah, and I think we can see it in the, the overall theme that we've been looking at, which is um, the, uh, the victorious child. You know, you're putting all your hopes uh, for the crushing of the serpent's head on the birth of a child. You're putting on your hopes for the future of uh, the Abrahamic promise on a child. Um, I think of the Chris, Christmas hymn that we uh, used to sing at Biblical Horizons conferences all the time. Uh, that little babe, three days old, has come to rifle Satan's fold. 
And it, uh, the, the poem, a Robert Southall poem, that uh, he turns all of the infantile actions and sounds of the, of, uh, the infant Jesus into, um, he, he describes them in military terms. You know, his, his great weapons are tears and cries. Um, but that, you know, the, the joke of a, a, an old woman giving birth and the joke of putting our hopes for salvation on a, on a little child it's a part of part of the part of the same joke of the gospel. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.